Last night, I had the distinct privilege of officiating a wedding. Now, as a pastor, that's, that's just kind of part of the job description. You marry them, you bury them, and, and it's, it's a big deal. <laughs> and I love my job. I love my calling. And I, and, I, and I do particularly enjoy officiating weddings when I, when I can make it happen and it works with the calendar. It's great to be there and to have spent time with the bride and the groom prior to the wedding. Because the wedding, the, let's just be honest, a wedding is a funky event. I mean, it's, it's reverent and it's a worship service, but it's an odd event that two people stand up in front of their friends and their family, they say some words, the minister says some words, and they're supposed to go out and spend the rest of their lives together. And it's always fascinating because almost every wedding I've ever done, the bride and the groom have bathed and showered beforehand. And and the I don't know if it, do they still make banaca? Remember banaca? <laughs> Stuff you spray, I mean, the, the, the minty aroma at the altar can almost knock a fella out. <laughs> and it's such a beautiful, beautiful picture. And, and he's there in the, you know, usually he's in a suit or a you know, tuxedo of some sort. And the bride is there in her, her wedding attire, her gown and veil. And, and they, they stand and just look longingly into each other's eyes. And it is a beautiful, beautiful moment. But, but I think my favorite part of the wedding, no matter whose it is or when it is, is that I know that they know absolutely nothing about what they're getting into. That they are ignorant beyond words. Now, that doesn't mean that they're stupid. I'm, I'm not saying that. Ignorant just means they're uninformed. And how many of you have been married for more than 20 minutes? Let me just see a show of hands. Okay. Those of us who have been married more than 20 minutes, am I preaching or am I preaching? I mean, you, you, you get married and you don't have a fat clue what you're getting into. And, and, and I thought last night as I did yet another wedding, it, it's, such, it's such a beautiful thing. Because while they don't know what they're getting into, I know that this couple last night, like a lot of the other marriages I've officiated over, the interesting thing is they don't know what they're getting into, but they do know enough to make it great. You see, they, they have enough intellectual head knowledge by virtue of the homework that they've done, the premarital counseling that I've done with them or other people on our staff have done, and they, they know enough information, but it's the, it's the application where, where the rubber meets the road, where, where a husband has to choose to love his wife as Christ loves the church. I always love it when, when, when I'm doing premarital counseling and a bride will sit, bride to be will sit down in my office and she'll say, We are so excited that you're going to be doing the wedding and we look forward to a beautiful ceremony. But I just need to make sure that you understand there will be no mention of submission or obedience. Okay, thank you so much. 
And, and I get it. I, I understand where that's coming from. But it also indicates a gross misunderstanding of Christian marriage. Because while the Bible does say that the husband is to lead in the home, that the husband is the head of the household, in the biblical God's economy of marriage, that leadership begins and is sustained and ends with service and sacrifice. So any guy that ever wants to really go off on submission in the home and the spiritual leadership of the guy, be really careful what you're signing up for, Hoss, because it's a big, big deal. It's, it's a lot like our faith. I would suggest to you that the vast majority of people in this room right now know enough information to have a vital, vibrant, flourishing, thriving faith relationship with the God of the universe through his son, Jesus Christ. And yet, I do know enough to know that at least some of us in this room, that's not where we're at this morning. And so today as we continue this series, this, this idea, this conversation that normal is overrated, we we're going to pick up where we left off last week. If you'll remember last week, we, we talked about the fact that in order to experience the abundant life that Jesus Christ became one of us, lived a perfect sinless life, died on a cross, and rose again to facilitate, to offer to us, we have to be willing to abandon normal, to abandon normal and to adopt the atypical, the, the above normal, out of the ordinary life that is truly life, this life that he offers to anyone who would follow him, who would believe in him. And we talked about the fact that as a church family, Lake Hills Church has been, since the very, very beginnings 20 years ago, committed to this concept that normal is overrated, that we were born with a calling from God rooted in that concept, that our calling was to, to redefine church for the city of Austin and beyond. But in order for us to redefine church, that only happens to the degree to which us, we individually, are willing to redefine our lives, to reorient our lives around the name that is above every name, this, this same Jesus. And so today, we're going to kind of go from information to, to application. And today, what we're going to do it just in the time that we've got left here, we've only got about two and a half hours left in this service. So, uh, just I like to do that to see who's new and who's paying attention. <laughs> but today, we're going to do something as a church family that is absolutely transformative. Today, you and I are going to begin right where we are, no matter where you are, from the most committed, consistent Christ follower in the room to the person who's just walked in the doors kicking the tires, every single one of us has the opportunity right now 
to begin to redefine our lives according to God's design for our lives by redefining our priorities. By redefining our priorities. Because the fact is, as we said last week, the gospel changes everything. A relationship with Jesus Christ, to to accept what he did for you personally on the cross and in the resurrection, ought to occasion a change in our lives. For instance, if, if I understand intellectually, if I have the information what Jesus did, that, that when he died on the cross, it wasn't just an act of love, but it was, it was literally taking on himself, personally and spiritually, all my sin. If you were to grasp that and to understand that, that he took all your sin, everything, now, I'm not talking about the stuff that we, you know, put on display when we come to church. Hi. Hello. Good to see you. Or the stuff that, you know, we took with us to the altar when we showered up and, and freshened our breath and even the guys did their hair. I, I'm talking about the junk. I, I'm talking about the funk. I'm talking about, I'm talking about all of that stuff that we're ashamed of, all of that stuff that we hope nobody ever finds out about. He took all of that on himself. And because he did that, he he paid the penalty for all of that stuff. Your penalty, my penalty, not only that he died, because we, all, we know intellectually that sin leads to death. It, it takes us away from God who is the author of life and takes us towards death, which means we're separated from God by our sin. And when Christ took that on himself, he was spiritually, actually separated from God the Father. He was estranged. He was removed from him. It's why his last words, he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was alone because he was in his sin. And that's something that every one of us can relate to. We we all know that. That The deeper you go in in your sin, the deeper you go in your junk and your funk, the, the less your relationships work. The the more isolated we become, the more remote we become. Jesus went through that. He he did that. And he died. But but then when he rose again from the dead, and, and please understand, he actually rose from the dead. That's not a metaphor. That's not a word picture. And if you're here today and, and you, you kind of have a trouble with the whole resurrection thing, first of all, I want you to know you're in a safe place to process that. But we would just encourage you and lovingly challenge you to, to just consider the fact that Jesus is God. He created everything in the earth and in the world. How he did it is a whole other conversation. Was it six literal days? Was it six squillion years? Let's have a cup of espresso and debate it. But the fact of the matter is, he did it. 
And if he created everything, then he could suspend those laws and natural principles that typically dictate everything. Because as the author of all life, as the author of all creation, that gives him the authority. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he had defeated death, he had subdued sin, so that you and I could be brought into a relationship with God. The relationship that our sin jacked up. Now, we, we know these things to be true. They're, they're intellectual facts. But then there's the question, how do we put those into practice? How do, we, how do we make them a part of our lives? How do we allow those facts to reorient and realign and redefine our priorities? And it comes down to this. Prayer. Prayer is the redefining tool at the disposal of every single follower of Christ. Now when I say the word prayer, as many people as there are in the room, that's how many different ideas and concepts of prayer there are going to be. But I I want us to to focus and kind of make sure that we're on the same page and have a baseline understanding of what prayer is. And to get at this, I want to go to the life of Jesus. In the book of Mark, if you've got your Bibles, look in Mark chapter 1. In Mark chapter 1, the Bible, the Bible says something so transcendent, so revolutionary, so radical about Jesus. Mark chapter 1, verses 35 through 38. This is what the Bible says. It says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus, everybody say Jesus. Jesus. Hey, you know you're in church, so it's okay. <laughs> say, say Jesus. Say it with reverence, but say Jesus. Jesus. They're very good. That's important. He's important, but it's important to this verse too. Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Now, I want to take that verse down for just a second. That verse blows my mind. Like, boom. I I don't understand. Jesus prayed. Now, here's the deal. Jesus is God. So, who's Jesus praying to? Now, I don't mean to create a crisis of faith for you. I'm just saying, (laughs) I wouldn't think that Jesus would need to pray. I mean, would you? I mean... But it it teaches us something really important about God. That that before people ever showed up, before there was ever a human being on the earth, that that God 
God is relational within himself. Because there's God the Father, there's God the Son, Jesus, and there's God the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. And so there's this trinity, this one in three, three in one reality that God is relational. That's why the Bible says in 1 John that God is love. God didn't start loving once he created you and me and humanity. He already was love. And so there's this, there's this drive within God's personality, within his character, to connect. If he is love, then we know that love is, is engaging. Love is connecting. And so even though Jesus is God, during his earthly ministry, he was still driven. He was still compelled to connect with the Father, to connect with the, with the Holy Spirit, and, and to, to continue to cause that relationship to flourish and to thrive. Now, the Trinity is a mystery. If anybody ever tells you, let me explain to you the Trinity, you need to run for the hills. It's a mystery and a reality. It's, it's beyond our capacity to totally grasp, but we know that it is true. That we have evidence of the Trinity at the baptism of Jesus. The Spirit of God descended in the form of a dove, and the voice of the Father rang out saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So there was Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But, but Jesus got up early in the morning to pray. And then, let, let's keep going, verse 36. I'll, and keep in mind, this is the very first chapter of Mark. This is one of the first things we learn about Jesus. Jesus prays. Look at what it says in verse 36. Simon, who, who would later become Peter, Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Now, let me ask you a question apart from Scripture just for a second. How many of you finished this past week with something on your to-do list not done? It's a safe place. Be honest. Isn't it true that, that in our culture, in our, in our homes and neighborhoods, that, that the badge of courage in our world is that we're busy? We're, we're busy. Whew, whew. How you doing? Well, whoa, man, busy. I'm busy. Whew. Man, how you doing? I, I only got four hours of sleep last night. Whew. I'm busy. I'm busy. Just remember Jesus' task. His whole earthly existence comprised 33 years. The, the span of time that of his career, his ministry, was three years. And he was here to save the world. Now, how busy are you? <laughs> but, but Peter, Peter it, I, man, thank God for Peter. And that they tell us so much about him. It's like, where have you been, Lord? Peter's like, Jesus, we need to pick up the pace here. 
which is a bold move. (laughs) But he said, everyone is looking for you. But, But Jesus carved out this time to go off to a solitary place and pray. I want to give you just a working definition of prayer that that I think falls directly from the example Jesus sets here. here. Prayer is the act of personally and verbally responding to God and growing in love and trust of Him. Prayer is the act of of personally and verbally responding to God and growing in love and trust of him. One theologian calls prayer an act of mystical intellect. I love that. Mystical intellect. That there is a mysterious kind of undefinable dynamic to prayer that is also an act of our minds and our wills, that that we choose to engage with the God who created us. And, And we choose to do it at an emotional level, at a spiritual level, at a at an intellectual level. Do you remember when when the guy asked Jesus, he said, what was the greatest commandment in the whole Bible? Of all of the commandments in the Bible, what's number one? Jesus didn't even bat an eye. He goes, that's easy. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's to love God. And so it has to be an act of verbally responding to God as God is and not as we wish God to be. You see, we don't get to define God's personality and God's character. He created us in his image. We get in trouble when we try to create him in our image. Our our vision of God is too small. If we ever say, well, I couldn't worship a God who dot, 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 or God would never dot, 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 Who am I to say what God can and can't do? And that's why Scripture is so critical to our prayer lives. We have to be praying to God as he is, as he reveals himself through the Bible. This is why Bible study is kind of a big deal. This is why knowing what the Word of God says matters. Being able to to read the Bible, to digest it, to spiritually metabolize it. And as we metabolize it, it becomes a part of our language, part of our verbal, active response to God as he is. Very quickly, I want to give you some homework that I will be participating with you on for the next 21 days. Three weeks. I want to invite you to join me to take 20 minutes and follow Jesus. 20 minutes a day, follow Jesus.
20 minutes. Tell your neighbor right now, you got 20 minutes. You got 24 hours, Jack. Jackie. 20 minutes to read scripture and to pray. And I want to encourage you with everything I have. I want, as a pastor, I feel like I should exhort you. I'm going to exhort you today to write your prayers down. Starting today. This doesn't start on Monday. This starts today. And if you already had your quiet time today, you're a step ahead of the game. It means you were probably on time and had your cup of coffee to church this morning. But to do this together for 21 days, to read scripture and to pray, P-R-A-Y, to pray like this, with, with this model, this paradigm. It's not the only way to do it, but this is how I want to invite you to do it as a church family for 21 days. P. Give me a P. P. Praise. Our prayers should begin with praise and verbally telling God how we love him, why we love him. Read the Psalms. The Psalms are an amazing hymnal, a testimony to God's goodness and faithfulness and power and strength and beauty and love. But, but it's also that emotional reaction to circumstances. Man, David wrote most of the Psalms, and there's a lot of stuff in there about how his enemies are coming after him, and he's praying God's judgment down on him. I mean, it's some strong stuff. But it's his heart to the heart of God. Praise is where our prayer begins. Praise is where our emotional and our intellectual fuse together in us and begin to function through us. Because it's as we praise and as we worship God that we begin to understand who he is. And in understanding who he is, we gain self-awareness and an understanding of who we are. And then it begins to play out into every other part of our lives. P is praise. R. Give me an R. R. Repent. As you worship, God will bring to mind things in your life that are not right with him. Confess them, get them out, and repent. Repent means a 180. We're walking in this direction towards sin. Ooh, this will be fun. Nope. 180, repent. We begin walking back toward God. But that happens when we verbally repent. Now, when I say verbally, you don't have to do it out loud. You can. Verbal, verbal means wordage, wordily. Use words. Use your words. Talk to God. Repent. A, give me an A. A. Ask. Ask him. What do you want? He commands us, make our requests known. Ask him. Jesus told a great story. He said, listen, he goes, how many of you are parents? He goes, if your kids asked you for a loaf of bread, you wouldn't hand them a stone. Or if they asked you for a fish, you're not going to throw them a snake. That would be funny, but you don't do that. Then how much more does your heavenly father, you're sinful people, and you wouldn't do that to your kids, how much more does your heavenly father know what you need and want to provide it for you? Ask him. Ask. And then why? 
why, kind of like we did last week, this is the hard one. You ready? Yield. Yield. This is where you yield. This is where I yield my spirit, my heart, my desires, my life, my actions, my life. I yield to the authority of God as it's revealed in Scripture. Yield. Just yield. 21 days, starting now, today. I, I know, I know. Cowboys are playing Denver. That's three and a half hours out of 24. 20 minutes together as a church family. I'd love to give you a money-back guarantee on this exercise, but it doesn't cost any money. It just costs time. I want to ask you if you will bow your heads for just a moment. You know, when we talk about prayer, biblical prayer redefines life. It redefines life because it realigns our priorities. Prayer is not about our state of consciousness. It's not about certainly, you know, getting what we want. It's prayer is about God. Prayer focuses on Jesus. His will. His grace. His life. And how we can respond to that. Prayer is our response to God's amazing grace. Our lives can be an expression of prayer. If you're here today and you've never committed You've never yielded your life to Jesus. That's where prayer begins. That, that's the starting blocks. And so b- before we leave today as a church, we want to just give you the opportunity to do that. I'm going to ask that nobody be moving for any reason because this is too important. But if you're here today and you want to begin a relationship with Jesus, then you just pray right where you're sitting. Just that connecting with God, that the act of verbally responding. You just pray in your own heart silently something like this. Just pray and say, Jesus, I need you. Because of my sin, I need your forgiveness your grace, 
And I'm asking you to bring me from death to life. I confess my sin. I claim your forgiveness. And I will follow you from this moment forward, yielded with everything I have. For just a moment, I want to ask you to remain in a spirit of prayer and let you know if that was your prayer today, this is the greatest day of your life. This is the moment that God begins a new life in you. And he's, he's provided a group of people around you to help. That's what the church is. We're a hospital full of sinners. And we've always got room for one more. And so if we can help, I want to I ask you to do two things. Number one, before you leave, fill out that Connect card that's in your program. Make it a point to just fill it out. And you'll notice about halfway down, there's a place to indicate there, I committed my life to Christ. And as you fill that out, just tear it off at the perforation. And before you leave today, Make it a point to hand that to one of our ushers or our hosts, or there's a, a blue canopy out underneath the big porch. You can hand it to somebody who will be there. But then second of all, if that was your prayer, I want to ask you just to raise your hand for just a brief moment. As our heads are bowed, just raise your hand and hold it up high so that you physically stamp this moment in your life, but you also stamp this moment in the life of this church. Because for 20 years, this has been the most important priority to us as a church. And we want to be a family of faith with you. We want to learn from you. We want to help in any way that we can at whatever pace works for you. But we're here. And as a family... As you put your hands down, we like to put our hands together and tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.